Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter number 23. Luke, chapter number 23. We're going to be reading and looking at this morning verse 32 down through verse number 43. The title of the message is Three Crosses on Calvary's Hill. Three Crosses on Calvary's Hill. And uh, this is a familiar text and one that I'm sure that you have read many times. But there's something within this text that I think is worth bringing out that really applies to every single one of us. And uh, that is what we see with these three crosses and the men on these crosses. And so let us, let us go to the Word of God this morning. Luke chapter number 23, verse 32 down through verse 43. The Bible says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one... The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We think about Christianity for a moment. What is the most common and well-known emblem or symbol of Christianity? It would be the cross, isn't it? The cross is what prevails as the symbol and emblem of Christianity. And what does the cross do? The cross takes us back to a very dark day on a hill known as Golgotha. But there on that hill, there was not just one cross, not just two crosses, but there was three crosses. Three crosses there that day representing three men who died on that hillside. And we think of the Christian scene there. It is three crosses picturing the scene of crucifixion on the hill. When I was a young boy at church camp, they always had a, you know, a drawing competition uh, for the younger age group. And we would have to draw a biblical picture and try to get the judges you know, to judge which one was best. And they would give out prizes for first, second, and third place, right? And I decided I'm going to draw the three crosses on the hill. I mean, this is surely going to give me a great chance at getting in the top three and so they announced all three names first second and third and guess which one I came in none of them (laughs) none of them I guess that means I'm not very artistic right but that but I came to find out that nearly every other kid had the same idea as me so I had a short shot at winning that award whether one can draw an elegant portrayal of this scene or not it makes no difference but one thing we do know about this scene of three crosses on Calvary's hill is that It is a beautiful scene. At the same time, it's a horrific scene. It's paradox. 
It's a beautiful thing to behold, but at the same time, it is a horrific thing to behold, as such a dark day it was. It is a special scene. It is a memorable scene. It is a scene that has teachings in it that give us life change. Say, well, what is the reason it is so special? See, this scene is taking place at a place called Golgotha in our text, and that, that, that place called Golgotha we see in verse 33, it's mentioned as the skull. Now, some translations may render that word as Calvary. And Luke would be the only trans, Luke would be the only place in Scripture where you see that. The English term Calvary is, is based on the Latin word Calvaria. It comes uh, from the Vulgate's Latin translation of the Greek. And so that takes us back to the Hebrew or Aramaic Golgotha, which is the skull. But this was a place where transgressors were, cru- were crucified and put to death. It's a place that actually bears the image of a skull, which is why it's uh, named that. But it's ironic that it's a place of death as well. But did you know that each one of these deaths here, the three deaths that we see on Calvary's Hill, they're all different from each other. Each one of them is different from each other. One of those deaths is impossible for you to have. Only one could die in this way and ever has. But the other two kinds of deaths we see are going to be one of your own. You will die in one of these two ways. What kind of deaths do we see at the three crosses on Calvary's hill? Notice with me number one, and the first one being the first man has a death for sin. The first man is dying for sin. Sin, not because of his sin, but on behalf of the sins of others. You see, this death is completely different from the other two dying with him. This death is a death for the punishment of the sins of sinners. This is the death of the man in the middle. The man in the middle is Jesus Christ. He's the one that is the focal point of the story, of the narrative, of the, 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 the passage before us, and even the whole of Scripture. But notice with me a couple things about this death that we find, of this man on the cross in the middle. The first thing I see is Christ's intriguing statement from the cross. His intriguing statement from the cross Now, we're pretty familiar with what led up to this point in the narrative. Christ has been betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He's been taken captive by the Jews of his own will, allowing them to do this. He's been turned over to the Roman authorities where Pilate, the governor, has had him tortured beyond measure. He's been taken up Calvary's hill, bearing his cross, enduring great shame and agony and pain. And now he's brought there, condemned to die by way of crucifixion. Amid dying a gruesome death, Jesus calls out in an unexpected way, a statement that really is unexpected from the hearers. You read verse number 34 and notice what he says from the cross. He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, there are a variety of statements that he makes from the cross, and you read these through the Gospels, but this one tends to stick out to me. All of them are wonderful and have truth within them for our, for our hearts, but, but this one, can you think of such a thing? Can you think of maybe what you would be thinking 
and your last moments of suffering and agony and shedding your blood on the cross and having been betrayed and, and, and mutilated by the Roman power, what would be going through your mind in your last moments on the cross, your last hours even, because he hung there for six hours? Would you be calling out to God to forgive those who had condemned you to death and driven nails through your hands? I think that most likely would not have been on our minds. (laughs) That most likely would not have been in our minds. None of us would have ushered such a statement. But this statement reveals the heart of Jesus and much of who Jesus is in reality. What does it reveal to us about Jesus? Well, firstly, I would say that it manifests Jesus' relationship to God. Who is Jesus? To God the Father. He is God the Son. And being such, he cries out, Father, Father, forgive them. This identifies who Jesus is. He is God's only begotten Son. His only begotten Son. And we see this clearly through the Scriptures. Even at the very announcement of His birth in which He'd come into the world. The news came to Mary, the virgin. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, is not the biological son of Joseph, his earthly stepfather. Rather, the miracle made sure that Jesus is indeed divine. Deity. Not just a man, but the God-man. God, wrapped in human flesh, born into this world, To live a genuine and real human life in this world. You see, this man in the middle, crucified, he's no ordinary man like the others. He is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he is indeed God himself, wrapped in flesh. Who could ever fathom such a scene? The eternal God, clothed in humanity, crucified, dying on a cross as if he was the worst criminal who had ever lived. This statement reveals who he is. But secondly, we notice that the statement also reveals from the cross his love even for his enemies. You see, Jesus had a, had a compassion for sinners, even those who nailed him to the cross. And he is essentially practicing what he preached. You notice he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Matthew 5.44, he teaches and says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. That's pretty opposite of what the world would have us to believe, right, about our enemies? Praying for them is not our first impulse. Praying for them is not our first reaction. But Jesus teaches this, and here we see he is indeed practicing it. But thirdly, understand... We see Jesus' desire for their forgiveness. You notice that Jesus came to this earth for the very purpose of bringing forgiveness of sin to sinful people. Sinners. This is why Jesus is being crucified there. This is why Jesus is dying. It is indeed to bring about real and everlasting forgiveness for sinners. This is why he came into the world. 
This was his purpose. Again, it was said at his birth to Joseph this time, who would be his stepfather and help watch over Mary and Jesus as he grew up into a man. It was told to him in Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. He will do this. He's not going to try to do it. He will save his people from their sins. And the means by which he will save his people from their sins requires this crucifixion. Now one might wonder, was Jesus' prayer at the cross answered? Did forgiveness come to any of his enemies that crucified him or were there mocking him? Or even those who participated in his trial, I would say it was answered. For example, many of the Jews who most likely participated in condemning him to death were later converted on the day of Pentecost when Peter pointed directly at them and said, This Jesus who you slew and hanged on a tree, God has risen from the dead. And what do we find happens in that great day of Pentecost? They realize how guilty they are. They are brought under conviction of the Holy Ghost. And what happens? He says, brothers, they answer, what shall we do? And Peter says to repent. Repent. We learn that 3,000 souls repented and got saved that day. But even in this immediate moment, I think there's more to it than that. Just a few hours after after Christ was crucified and all the events that happened surrounding his crucifixion, even one of the Roman centurions, the soldiers there, ordered to help in this endeavor of killing him. He confessed himself, truly, this was the Son of God. Not all the soldiers said that, but this one did. Truly, this was the Son of God. Something happened in this man's mind and heart. We think about the intriguing statement Jesus makes and all that it reveals here on Calvary's hill. But not only do we see his intriguing statement at the cross, the man in the middle, we see letter B this morning, we see Christ's innocent suffering on the cross. His innocent suffering on the cross. And this is absolutely essential to the whole of the gospel message. I hope you understand this this morning. Look at the man in the middle, and you'll see a man who has been shamefully entreated by the people of Israel and the Roman governor, Pilate. He is suffering immensely. He has been tortured beyond measure that we ourselves cannot even fathom or understand. Having been already violently mistreated by the Jews in that kangaroo trial that they ran him through, Jesus is turned over to Pilate where they sought his death from the Roman authority. And here's what we find happens with Pilate in John 19, 1. A little short verse, but it packs a punch. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And flogged him. He said, well, what is this flogging? It's so much more than just getting a little whip here and there. You see, there were two levels of flogging by the Romans. One being lighter as kind of a warning, and then one being heavier for those who are going to be condemned to death. And the light flogging was, uh, was usually what came first. It was painful. But this flogging, the second one, was horrific. 
And I believe Jesus experienced both of them as you read the gospel accounts. You see, in Roman flogging, the condemned were beaten with leather whips that were made of pieces of bone and rock and sometimes even glass. The very design of this mechanism was to shred the flesh off of its victim. There's a reason that in the prophet Isaiah, he foretells about Jesus and says that his image was marred more than any man. Beyond recognition. And Jesus' body was taken to the slaughter before he was ever given the cross. And there up on Calvary's hill, just as Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. That's the description. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What a picture this is of our Lord today. So there at the top of Calvary's hill, we see Jesus beaten beyond measure, only to be laid upon the cross, His right hand taken to the side and a nail driven through him. His left hand taken to the left side and a nail driven through him. His feet at the bottom of the cross, nail driven through them. They raise him up on the cross and there he hangs, fastened to the cross by nails. And as he hangs there for hours, it is agonizing the entire duration. In crucifixion, one dies of asphyxiation, suffocation. It takes every, every ounce of his strength to raise himself up just to grab a breath. And with every raise, you imagine the open wounds rubbing against the wood. All of this pain and agony searing through his body. His blood flows down from the cross by his many open wounds dripping onto the ground. And through all of this, we see the mockery of him in verse 35 through verse 38. The people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him saying, He saved others. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Mockery and shame. The Roman soldiers doing the same thing. Now the true question about this man in the middle suffering in such a horrific way is this. Does he deserve this suffering? Does he deserve this suffering? And if not, why is he enduring this suffering? Did he deserve such treatment? Did he deserve such a death? And this truly is the central point to the gospel message. That Christ is suffering on the cross in absolute innocence. The answer to the question is no. He did not deserve this suffering. No, he did not deserve this agony, this mistreatment, this shame, this guilt, this bloodshed. He did not deserve any of it. Why? Because Jesus, as God's Son, is the only man who has ever lived in absolute perfection. Absolute perfection, meaning he never once broke any of God's laws any of the laws of the land, he himself was sinless. And even Pilate, the Roman governor who ordered his crucifixion, said this before the Jews. 
In John 19, 4, he said, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate himself, a pagan ruler, evaluates Jesus and realizes, this guy has done nothing worthy of death. And so he tries, actually, to get Jesus released, but the Jews put the pressure on Pilate. Really, it was political pressure in that day and time. But the ultimate reason by which Christ is still going to be crucified is because this was God's ordained way to accomplish salvation. To accomplish salvation. Which leads me to letter C this morning. Notice with me, Christ's intentional substitution at the cross. Because this is the core of the gospel message, friend. Many people know that Jesus died on a cross long ago. Very few realize why he died. Very few realize the heart of the gospel message. You see, Christ's suffering and death on the cross are not without purpose. As we saw in his opening statement, he is dying to bring forgiveness to his sinful people. But this forgiveness, understand that he came to bring, must first be bought. And the cost of that forgiveness is the perfect bloodshed and death in his mortal body to pay and ransom sinners. You see, blood was the requirement to pay for sin through the Old Testament and on into the New when it comes to Jesus. All of the sacrifices you see in the Old Testament, they all point forward to one final perfect sacrifice. One. Because the blood of bulls and goats were not sufficient to permanently take away sins. It wasn't bulls and goats that sinned against God, it was man who sinned against God. And as a result of this, man must pay the penalty. You and I must pay the penalty, but instead of us paying the penalty, here's what we find. We find the God-man paying the penalty, shedding his blood on behalf of his people. You see, we didn't physically nail him to the cross, but he is there because of us. He is there because of us. Because of our sins. You see, in order for the guilty to go free, the penalty of sin must be paid. And here on the cross, is, this is exactly what is happening. Christ is offering His innocent, sinless, perfect life and blood as a substitute for the guilty, wicked sinners that we are. Peter makes this plain for us. In 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So you see the man nailed here in the middle. The man crucified in the middle is, is a man dying for sin. And he is the only one who could die for sin. He's the only one that did die for sin. He alone, friend, is the Savior of sinners. There is none other. 
Christ alone is salvation. And you see that his death is intentional. And it is definite in his mission. He did not come to die to possibly save sinners. He came to actually save sinners. John 10, 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so the gospel message in its most simple form is this. That Christ has died for sinners and risen from the dead. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just as one reference... If you ever want to take somebody to a passage of Scripture and that summarizes the gospel, this is it. This is the summary of the gospel in simplest forms. Verse 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says to this church, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Now notice these statements. That Christ died. Why? For our sins. For our sins. According to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures. Christian, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Christ the Lord died for our sins. Was buried and rose again. Salvation belongs only in Christ. And it comes to us only through faith. Only through faith. And so through this, through His death on the cross, those who believe in Him alone as their Savior receive a gift that is beyond measure. And we see the substitutionary nature of this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, For our sake He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin." Who knew no sin. There's his innocent nature. Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what happens through the gospel. Christ is imputed the sins of his people. And in turn, his people through faith in Christ are imputed his righteousness to their account. You see that? All of us have a record before God that is filthy, so filthy we don't even fathom it. And yet in Christ it's washed clean, washed in the blood, and righteousness is attributed to our account. His, because I don't have any of my own. It's got to be His. His righteousness is attributed to my account through faith alone in Him. So before God I am set free from that penalty that I could never pay. Don't that bring you joy, Christian, if you know that? If you don't know that, I hope you come to know that, even today. See, the man in the middle experiences a death for sin. His death is unique. His death is accomplishing something. But the next two deaths we see on the other two crosses are going to be one of our own. One of our own. The second man has a death in sin. He dies on the cross in his sin. In his sin. What does that mean? It means he dies in an unrepentant, unbelieving state. He dies in his lost condition. He dies in his sinful condition, having never experienced 
salvation in his mortal life. Notice with me letter A, we see the first thief's sinful condition. The first thief's sinful condition. We read in verse 32 that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And we read in other passages that these criminals were thieves in particular. Now, why are these other men upon the crosses at Calvary's Hill too? Because they're criminals who were caught and condemned to death. These two criminals are a stark contrast to the man in the middle, aren't they? They are sinners, guilty sinners, worthy of this punishment, while Jesus was not worthy of this punishment. But here's what I want you to see is that in these two criminals, we see the great picture of every person within humanity. How so? Because every single one of us in this room today are guilty of sin. And do you know what sin is at its most basic definition? Transgression of the law of God. Transgression of God's law. We have broken it. We have obliterated it with our sinfulness, by our nature, by our acts of commission, things we do, by our acts of omission, the things we don't do that we should do. We are sinners. We're good at it. It's our nature. That's all we really know how to do. We are excellent sinners. We're good at it. We've broken the law of God, and we do this regularly. Scripture says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes everyone. We've all sinned. And when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the very beginning, he had some kind of an idea of what havoc that would bring upon man's relationship with God. Maybe he had heard God's command and knew what would happen. Maybe not. doesn't matter. He just knew he wanted them against God. He wanted them against God. And, and that is exactly what happened. Guess what? Adam and Eve, they gave in to Satan's temptation. They're accountable. Satan's not the one who made them do it. They're accountable. So when you sin, you can't say, oh, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He might have worked to influence you in some way, but ultimately we're all accountable for our own actions and thoughts and words and everything we do. Adam gave in, Eve gave in, plunging all of mankind into rebellion against their holy God. And so since that time, the chains of sin are upon all of us and bring us our own condemnation. Charles Spurgeon used a parable to illustrate the bondage of sin this way. He said, there was once a tyrant who summoned one of his subjects into his presence and ordered him to make a chain. The poor blacksmith, that was his occupation, had to go to work and forge the chain. When it was done, he brought it into the presence of the tyrant and was ordered to take it away and make it twice the length. He brought it again to the tyrant and again he was ordered to double it. But he came back when he had obeyed the order and the tyrant looked at it then commanded the servants to bind the man hand and foot with the chain he had made and cast him into prison. Spurgeon continued with the application and said, that is what the devil does with men. He makes them forge their own chain and then binds them hand and foot with it 
plunging them into outer darkness. Now certainly, the man who made the chain, he's the one making the chain. But he's influenced by the one above him. The one around him. You see, we've all made our own chain of sin. We're all guilty. We're worthy of condemnation. And God said in the beginning to Adam and Eve that on the day that they eat of the forbidden fruit, in other words, they break His law, His command not to take of it, they would surely die. Not might be, not might die, but surely die. Absolute. And that's exactly what took place. And because of that, we see the chain reaction. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And this sin has affected the very nature of our being. Morally, physically, spiritually, mentally, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, of the spiritual condition of sinners, he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's our condition. And we, like this thief, live on a path that only leads to death in sin, physically and spiritually. Notice with me letter P about him, though, that we see not only the first thief's Sinful condition. We see his sinful command. As this thief is in his own dying condition on the cross, what does he do? In verse 39, one of the criminals, this is this one, who were hanged, railed at him. What's it mean that he railed at him? It means he is ushering hateful, condescending mockery at Jesus. He joins in with those on the ground even though he's the one dying. And he's just mocking and berating Jesus. And he says the same question that they asked him. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and me. If you're going to get down from here, take me with you off this cross. He just wants to get off the cross and live, right? But what's he doing by saying such a thing? He's doing the same thing that you Jews were doing who mocked Jesus. And who challenged Jesus during his ministry. If Jesus really is the promised Christ, the Messiah of God, why are you dying in such agony and shame? That's the question. If it's really you and you have all this power, do something about it. Show us. Show us who you really are. Many of the Jews through Christ's ministry always questioned who he really was. We read in John 10, verse 24 through 25, in your notes. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You see, the evidence of who Jesus was was evident all around him. The principle of spiritual blindness comes into play here. They did not see Christ for who he was because they could not. and They also would not at the same time. But the life of Jesus makes it unmistakable. 
His teaching, His miracles, His sinless perfection, His power, all the Old Testament fulfillments in Him. He told them also in John 5.39, search the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness of me. In other words, He said, you're in the, you're in the Scriptures, but all the Scriptures you're searching, they testify to me. They point to me. I'm the one they're talking about. And truly, when it comes down to the very issue here, it is a depraved statement to demand that God prove himself to anyone. Has he not done so already without asking? Has not Christ already proven it? You see, the thief's command here is really a conditional unbelief that, well, if you just do this, then maybe I'll believe. Well, the Pharisees said that too, and he did a lot of things, and they still didn't believe. But here's what's wrong with this. It's the if God kind of thinking. If God's real, he needs to prove it. If God wants me to be saved, he should give me some kind of a sign. If God really loves me, then he wouldn't let this happen to me or that and this. A lot of people think that way. If God, then this. If God, then this. But you understand that God has already revealed everything we need to know for him in his word. We have no right to demand anything of God. Do you know why we don't? Because He's God. And we're not. We forget that. He's God and we're not. Jesus told them in Matthew 12, I won't go there for time's sake, but once again they said, give us a sign. And He said, you're not going to get any sign but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Jonah. We're going to get into Jonah in a few weeks. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale or the fish for three days, three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. What happened at the end of the three days, three nights with Jonah? Did he stay in the belly of the whale? Nope. Back on dry land. Guess what happened with Jesus? Resurrection. That's the only sign you're going to get. And even with that sign, they refused to believe. Even with all the plain truth of the resurrection, many refused to believe on Christ. This is a sad reality. And those who continue in their unbelief and unrepentant state will die in their sin and pay for their sin eternally. This brings us back to the text here with, with this thief, that he is blind to the truth of Christ. He is blind in his bound sinful condition, and in such he is dying in his sin, just as Jesus said would happen to those who do not believe. John eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sins, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And this is what's happening with this thief. He's dying in his sins. And he will die in his sin only to enter God's judgment and punishment upon all of his sin beyond the grave. And here's the sad reality, Christian, and everyone in here. That is happening to millions of people every day. And it saddens me to think that there could be someone in here under the sound of my voice preaching this that will walk out those doors in unrepentant unbelief and die in their sins. This is the plain truth of Scripture. He is dying in his sins. Will that be you? I certainly hope not. You say, well, what's the other option? I can't die for sin. I could die in my sin. What's the other option? Here's the good option. 
Here's the right option. Here's, here, here's what we need. And that is in the second thief, the criminal. Notice number three, we see a death free from sin. A death free from sin. You see, dying free from sin means that he is dying having been forgiven and saved from the penalty of sin that it brings. I want to point out two things about this last thief, and they are so crucial for us to see. And I'll be done. I know you're getting hungry, but hang with me. The second thief's honesty before Christ is the first thing I want you to see. The second thief's honesty before Christ. What's the difference? What's the difference between the first thief and the second thief? Both are guilty of their crimes. Both are worthy of their judgment. Both are condemned to die. The difference in them is seen in their recognition of who they really are, what they've done, and what they deserve. The second thief rebukes the first thief for railing at Jesus the way he is. Read verse 40 through 41. He says to that other thief, Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we're worthy of this is what he's saying. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, this guy in the middle, this man, he has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. He states plainly that he's guilty and Jesus isn't. The thief recognized and admits his own sin. He is worthy of the punishment he's getting. And here's the crucial point for us to understand today. Before a sinner can ever be saved from their sin, they first must recognize the sin they need to be saved from. That's the problem. Before you can be saved, you first got to be lost. Most people in our world walk through life no clue that they're headed for hell, lost in their sin because they don't see it or they don't want to see it, one or the other. Their sinful condition blinds them and keeps them going as if all is well in the world. Not knowing that they were created by a holy creator that they're accountable unto. If you carry on in your life thinking you're just fine as you are, that you're not that bad of a person and that God really wouldn't judge you and send you to hell over the sins you've committed, you are gravely mistaken. Gravely mistaken. Before you can ever be saved from sin, you have to see, honestly, with yourself, you have to see in your own heart that you're guilty. You're the one that's condemned before a holy God. Here's what 1 John 1.8 tells us. If we say we have no sin, we do what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You see, the thief is on his deathbed. He don't have time to play games with God. He's got moments left. He doesn't have time to think about this a while, and then maybe later I'll, 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 I'll seek out Christ and, and, and seek to be saved or whatever. For the thief here, it's crunch time. He is about to die. Death is knocking at his door. And usually when death knocks at your door, there's 
a whole rush of reality that hits you. Some honesty sometimes comes to the surface. Now, many come to their deathbed, and they trust in Christ as Savior. I believe there are deathbed conversions, if God has ordained that. We have an example of one right here before us. But many who have heard the gospel say often, I'll consider Christ later. I'll consider Christ later. You know what's wrong with that picture? God commands every person to repent today. He commands all men everywhere to repent now. Now. 2 Corinthians 6.2. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, In a favorable time I have listened to you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Christ has already atoned for sin. And if it be that you realize you're lost in your sinful condition, today is the day to repent and believe the gospel. The thief is honest about his sin. He's not trying to cover it up or justify it or work away around it. He's honest about who he really is and who Jesus is. Can you be honest today? Do you see your own sin and need for Christ? Well, this leads me to the next aspect here we see in this second thief. Letter B, I want you to see the second thief's hope in Christ. We see his hope. In Christ. And when I say hope, I'm not talking about, well, I kind of hope he might be who he really is. No, biblical hope is a real confidence. His hope in him. Not only did he recognize his sinful condition, he saw his condemnation, but he saw who Jesus is and what he needed in him. He says, we indeed justly, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man's done nothing wrong. Here we see the marvelous work of sovereign grace. Say, how so? This thief had a different persuasion about Jesus than he did earlier. And this is so important to see. Because in another text we learned that early on when they were first crucified, in Matthew 27, 44, the Bible says that the robbers... Now, I was terrible at English, but I was always told when there's an S at the end of this word, it means more than one, right? Any English teachers or any better English speakers than me? The robbers, plural, means both of them, reviled him in the same way. You understand, earlier on in this same event, this thief who is repentant now earlier was doing the same thing as the other thief. He was reviling Jesus, joining in with this. Both of them were. But now... This one has a change of heart. Now, this criminal that was reviling Jesus comes to see Jesus for who he is. Why did this thief have a change of heart and the other didn't? didn't. They're in the same condition, in the same Christ being crucified there. The answer is God's grace. That's it. The answer is God's grace. What is grace? It is the undeserved and unearned. Merit or favor of God. That is the definition of it. And this is the plain truth of Scripture, and it is glorious to behold. I want to take you there as we go to our last point here. Last text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 9. Notice this. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 9. 
You remember I quoted earlier, chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in trespasses and sins. If you look at verse 1 through 3, Paul describes the depravity of humanity and why we're so, we're, we're so in need of salvation. But in verse 4, we see a transition point. We were children of wrath, but now in verse 4 he says, but God, but God's a turning point, right? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, notice this next word, he made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In verse 8 and 9 here, the summary of this salvation event. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That, friend, is what salvation is all about. Grace changed the heart of this man. He was dead in his sins spiritually, but God made him alive. He quickened him to see and to believe On the Christ. This is the work of grace and not ourselves, friend. Not ourselves. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your doing, it's the gift of God. Even the faith by which we express in Jesus to believe, it is the gift of God. For the very reason that we can't boast in our salvation at all. And I want you to consider the thief for a moment. He's a great example against many who believe in other ways of salvation. The thief had nails in his hands, fastening him to a cross. You know what that means? He couldn't get down and do nothing. No religious works, no nothing. Never was baptized. Never even entered a church building. Didn't get to open the scriptures and read them after this moment. He couldn't get down and give an offering. He couldn't get down and try to live a better life and turn over his leaf. No, friend. This thief points to us the reality of what Ephesians 2 tells us. It is grace alone and not of ourselves. Not. If somehow you think that baptism is what's going to save you, that church is what's going to save you, that being a better person is what's going to save you, or any other works-based idea, you are wrong. Christian, the, the, the Bible testifies against us here. You cannot save yourself. If you could do that, there's really no point for Jesus' death on the cross, is there? Nullifies all of it. See, Jesus did what he did because we could never do what was required. And by faith in Christ, trust and persuasion in Christ, through his grace, he is saved, friend. Just as we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
And with this truth before us, what do we see in the thief's final moments of his earthly life? He asks the Lord in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, his faith here internally is expressed outwardly by his words. Faith is internal. He's already been made new in his heart, and now he vocalizes to the Lord. And what's Jesus say to him? He says, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I just can't imagine for a moment that thief and how wonderful those words must have been to come into his ears. His very last moments of earthly life and the Christ he has just believed on says, hold on just a little longer, in just a few moments, today you're going to be with me in paradise, in heaven. How wonderful that is. He is dying knowing his sin was taken care of by the very one who's dying next to him. The moment that thief would take his last breath, he would enter into the presence of Jesus. And Christian, this is the joy for all of us. The moment you believed on Christ, you are eternally saved. You can't lose that. So the moment that you depart in death, whenever that may be, you enter the presence of Jesus, our glorious Lord who paid it all for us. Because you have already died to sin. You've been freed from sin. Paul said to the Roman Christians, he said to them, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because that's what you are. So if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God, you understand that God... God gives us this great comfort of where we're going. But friend, today, if you have yet to trust in Christ as your Savior, if you're depending on something else other than Jesus alone and His sacrifices, you're depending on the wrong thing. Faith is only as good as its object. It doesn't matter how much I believe a three-legged chair is going to hold me up. It ain't going to hold me up once I sit in it. Christ is a firm foundation. He is salvation. Faith in Him is unbreakable. So the thief is a great example for all of us. And I think as you read this text, we could bring certain different things out of it. But I wanted to bring out these three deaths, these three crosses. Jesus, oh how glorious the man in the middle is. He's dying for sin. Praise God for that, Christian. He's dying for sin. But then there's those other two, one on the right, one on the left. One's dying in his sin, his unrepentant, rebellious heart, and he will enter into judgment. The one on the right comes to see who he really is, what he's worthy of, who Christ is, and who his only hope is, and that's in Jesus. He dies free from sin with the assurance of eternal life in Christ. Which one are you? Which one are you? You're going to die in one of those two ways. You can't die as the first man. Only Jesus could do that. But you're going to die either in your sins or you're going to die free from your sins. And that all depends on where your faith truly is resting. Is it in Christ alone? Let us stand to our feet as we prepare for a closing song. In this